open your bulletin, it's the text is printed in there, and we do this every week, and I've actually been using the New Living Translation, which is a paraphrase, uh, and some people don't like it. I, I think it's good for reading, uh, but just so that you know, as I read it, uh, I'm also going back and checking with uh, the other translations, ESV, NIV, these other translations, as well as the original uh, Greek, to make sure that the, that the flow of the text is true, uh, because sometimes in a paraphrase it can get a little confusing. And I'll explain uh, when we're going through the text this morning. So let's read God's Word, uh, Romans 6, chapter 1 through 15. Well, then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we were joined, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with with Christ, we know that we also will live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Sin no longer is your master. For you no longer live under the requirements of the law. Instead, you live under the freedom of God's grace. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. This is the word of the Lord. This uh, book of Romans is, uh, it's, notoriously difficult to outline. Uh, Paul is, is not sitting there and putting Roman numeral 1 and A and B and C and no, subnumber. He's actually in a room with probably one or two scribes. They're called amanuenses. 
And these, these guys could write, and most people in that day couldn't read and write. I'm sure Paul could, but, uh, f- but when, when, ancient, when the ancients were writing something like this, they would use a scribe. And so he is speaking. Who knows who was there? I wish I had been there. But anyway, he's speaking, and the scribes are writing. And so it's no wonder that as he speaks this letter, he's moving back and forth, touching on different ideas and concepts. But in his mind, he knows where he's going. He's telling humankind, all mankind, why the world is the way it is. Then, that was in chapter 1. Then in chapter 2 and 3, he explains that not only is the world a mess, but even religious people are a mess. Jews and Gentiles, none of them are without sin. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God, he says in chapter 3. Then he moves in chapter 4 and he shows the only way we can be right with God is just exactly how our father Abraham was made right with God, which was by faith. It was not anything that Abraham did, even though Abraham could have claimed that he was a righteous man because he was very good. But instead, he believed God's promises. He trusted God and God imputed to him or counted or reckoned him as righteous. And this was before he had done anything to earn it, any covenantal obedience to laws or anything like that. And so now Paul is starting to turn, especially in chapter 5, he told us, if you were here last week, that we were represented somehow, it's mysterious, I don't know that anybody knows the answer, but humankind was represented by an original pair of human beings, Adam and Eve, and they sinned. R.C. Sproul said this is going to be the question that everybody asks the minute we get to heaven. We're going to go looking for Adam and Eve and go, why did you do that? (laughs) You had everything. What's wrong with you? Are you crazy? But what Paul is saying is in that identification with Adam, we were somehow there ourselves. In other words, God did not create humankind with a flaw. We flawed ourselves. We messed ourselves up. And for whatever reason, it happened. God knew it was going to happen, and there's all these questions. But whatever happened, we are responsible for the way the world is. We've got to take responsibility. That's what it means to repent and believe the Gospels, to look around the world and say, you know what, I'm not responsible for the war in Ukraine. But there are things in my heart that are just as vicious and cruel as that. I've got to look inside. I have to see what they are. And even kids that have been raised in the church, or maybe you've been raised in the church, and you've just never been around any, and you're a good person, you do good things. Even those good things sometimes are motivated by bad heart motives. And Paul is going into, he's, he's got a surgical knife, and he's opening up the layers of our humanity and laying us bare so that we can see that there is indeed a problem, but there also is hope. And so in chapter 5, he said, Adam represented us, but we also had another representative, the second Adam, this other Adam, Jesus, who never sinned, who never did anything wrong, and stood for us and anybody that will trust him, for him. 
for, for anyone that will trust him and for their children and for their families. That Jesus would step into that place that Adam had. That Jesus would actually go into a garden just like Adam did. That the serpent would come to Jesus just exactly like Adam did. And Jesus would look into the darkness of the pit of hell. He would see everything that was before him, the, the torment, the torture, it would just was crushing him. The scripture says he was bleed, perspiring blood. And he begged his father, please let this cup pass. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours. You see, there's the comparison. Adam and Eve who took and ate out of selfishness and pride and brought death and sin into the world. And here's the man who stepped into the garden, looked, the de- looked at the evil in the world and all that was going to be laid on him on the cross and said, I will stay. I will obey. That is our representative. That's our king. And so Paul has just finished this magnificent, and he, you know, he ends it with, that this amazing verse, verse 21, we didn't read it, but this is from chapter 5. Just as sin ruled, in other words, it had command over all people and brought death, the consequence of sin was death. Now, God's wonderful grace rules. You see, there was a rule of evil and death and sin. Jesus broke that completely. He destroyed it utterly. And now he rules and he gives us right standing with God so that we can be right with him. And that results in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amazing. This is what Doug Moo, Dr. Douglas Moo says about this in his commentary. The power of Christ's obedience to overcome Adam's act of disobedience is the great theme of this paragraph. That was 5, uh, 12 through 21. He was telling us Jesus went to battle with Satan and destroyed him. Paul presents both Adam and Christ as representative figures whose acts determine the destiny of all who belong to them. Now listen, folks. You belong to somebody. You don't own yourself. And you can think through this. It's, it, it'll make your head hurt, but I hope some of you will think through this. Because in America, especially, we're very individualistic. We have rights, and that's all good under the Constitution. We have individual rights. But the way that God looks at the world is not like that. He looks at the world, and he sees people that are trusting him and people that are not trusting him. That's what he sees. Are you going to trust me or are you not going to trust me? And it's not a problem of having more faith. I need more faith. I don't have enough faith. My faith is small. Forget that. That is a bad concept, bad way to look at it. Your faith is no good. Just believe me. You can believe you're going to win the lottery. You're not going to win the lottery. You can believe your faith is nothing. Your faith is a decision to trust something or someone. And that's all faith is. Are you going to put your faith in Jesus? Then your faith becomes as strong as he is. Even when you're weak, he remains 
strong. So throughout the, the rest of this letter, Paul is going to begin asking a cascade of questions, rhetorical questions. He's a good lawyer. He's a rabbi. He knows how to ask questions. He knows the answer before he asks the question. And this is how he's teaching us, asking questions and asking us to open, listen, open our presuppositions about ourselves and about the world around us, the people sitting next to you in the pew, your spouse, children, friends, people you don't even know, but they happen to be here. All the world around you, Paul is opening so many that it's almost overwhelming. And this is why scholars have, have looked at this and said, this is the magnus opus of the Apostle Paul, the great letter that he wrote that defines so much of our Christianity. So this morning, I'm not going to talk about th two or three things uh, this Chapter 6 is impossible to outline, at least it was for me. And I look through other, the way other guys preach through it, and they're much smarter than me. Uh, and they come, up with, they come up with some good outlines, but I'm just going to give you, uh, I'm going to give you myself and how I see this and, and what I think the words that just plain. This cascade of questions that Paul begins to ask directly apply to your life. How you live, what you believe, all of that. So look at verse 1. Should we keep on sinning? This, this word continue keep, to continue to keep on sinning is epimeno. You don't have to remember this. It's just a Greek word that means really continuing. In other words, epi is over the top and meno is remaining or keeping on, persisting, abiding, habitually abide, uh, abiding. There's no break in your life with sin. There's no place in your life where you look at sin and you say, I cannot control it. No matter how good I am or no matter how hard I try or no matter what, my motives and my, my will, my humanity is not allowing me to break with sin. That's what this means. Should we continue that way? And then he says, so God can show more and more grace? In other words, you know, he just made this amazing appeal that we're living under grace and not under condemnation. And he knows the first thing that's going to pop into a human being's mind, oh, if I'm free from any penalty, if nobody's looking, I can do this and that and that. And my evil deeds, what I'm doing bad, is going to only make grace more and more. Now, who hasn't thought that? See, you're looking at me like, what is he talking about? No, 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 no. We have all thought that. I know I have. I did this morning. That's how great a pastor I am. I'm always fighting this, and so will you. But people that don't, have not trusted Christ, they're on their own. Good luck with that. You're just going to resist by your own willpower. And some of you are genetically prone to strong will. You can do things. You can quit eating chocolate chip cookies and nothing happens. And then there are those of us that dream night and day about chocolate chip cookies. And a cold glass of milk. And nobody looking. Not one. It's not how many am I going to eat. The question is how many am I not going to eat. 
Should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? And he answers with the strongest negative you can say in Greek, me genoito, may it never be, may it never happen. May it never occur, the thought of it not even occur. He's saying, no, you don't go out and just sin up a storm so that grace can abound. That is a misunderstanding of grace in the first place, and it's also a misuse of grace. It's presumption. And folks, presumption, presuming on God and presuming on His grace, uh, may be attached to the unforgivable sin that Jesus mentioned. Now, I haven't figured all this out yet, but I have spent a lot of time thinking about it. Because Jesus was facing a a problem that the religious people just slammed him and said, you have a spirit of the devil, Beelzebub, the great demon from hell. And Jesus told them, you can say what you want about me, but you cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit. He was talking about the Spirit's action in people's lives. That is not permitted. And we think that it's a thing. But blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a an absolute refusal to trust Jesus Christ and put your faith in him. It's not an act that you do. Oh my God, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Now it's all over for me. That's not what he's talking about. It's that you look at the works of Jesus. You come to church. You hear a sermon. We tell you what what this man is all about. And you go away. You have a choice. Am I going to believe what this this Bible says or am I going to believe that I can save myself, that I have enough currency in my bank account to make it happen? Everybody understand that? We all have it. Every day you have that choice. Listen to this. This is fantastic. Kenneth Woost, he's a a Greek scholar and and translator. And I, I couldn't, I can't tell you what amazing stuff I read from him this past few weeks. When God saves a sinner, listen, he separates him from the indwelling sinful nature, which which cleavage or separation is so effective that the believer is not compelled to sin anymore. Now I know you're wrestling with that because we all I sin, you know. Hang on. He has been permanently delivered from its power. When at the same time, that nature is left in him. The nature of sin. At the same time, the person is imparted a divine nature. How many of you believe you have been born again? That's your new nature. Okay, good. If you haven't been born again, do it today. Trust him. Just put your trust in him. There's a prayer in your bulletin (laughs) how to trust him. It's on page 8. Just trust him. And then you can be a Christian. And if you haven't been baptized, you come. We will baptize you. Now, I don't know how many of you can fit in a little bowl, but we have that bowl. We'll we'll try to get you in there. We'll baptize you if you haven't been baptized. At the same time, He has imparted the divine nature which gives him both the desire and the power to do God's will. You don't have to raise your hands. How many of you 
really want to do God's will in, in your heart. You say, you know, I want to do these. This is a desire. Let me tell you, that desire did not come out of you being a good person. That desire was planted there. Now, a person that doesn't have Christ, they can want to do good and they can actually do some good. But the source, think about this, the fountainhead of their doing good is themselves. The exact thing that sinks our boat every single day of our lives, us. So you're putting all your trust in yourself to do those good things. Well, what happens when you don't? What happens when you don't do the good thing you wished you had done and you tried and you actually went out and did it, and, but it was all you and it fails or you fail or the people fail or the whatever. Whatever happens, it's on you. Listen to this. How is it possible for a born-again child of God to do such a thing, to presume on grace. In other words, not to trust the Lord, but trust yourself. It is against our nature to habitually yield to the evil nature that is still present. We are not persons of such a nation, nature as to do so, as to do so. What he's saying is this. Let me, I'll, I'll ask you a trick question. This is a trick question. So you all know ahead of time. Um, how many of you are sinners? How many? Yeah, we're all sinners, right? Uh, uh, how many of you have a sin nature? Put those hands down. You, you do have a sin nature. It is still present. But what Paul is saying in this, in this chapter of si- chapter six, is that sin nature has been dealt a death blow. Been crucified with Christ. The old person is dead. The old person is hung on the tree. We're going to see that in a minute. The old person is is th- the power of that old nature is crushed. But for some reason the presence of that nature remains. And that's what we're battling. Not the sin nature's power, control, rule, but its presence. It's there. It's attached to us somehow. It's awful. We see it pop up every so often. For some, it's every day, every minute. I don't know. For some people, it's once in a while. I don't know. I don't know what goes on in your heart and mind. But when it pops up, it has no power. It can't force you. As he said, it can't compel you to do things. It feels like that at times, but that's because we don't rely on the Holy Spirit for that power. We forget to live in the power of sin, to live in it or abide in it. And you can choose. You can actually leave. You can say, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to go sin and I'm going to enjoy it. Paul goes on to say later, that action of willful sin and disobedience, what does it do to the Holy Spirit? What does it do? How does Holy Spirit feel about that? It grieves Him. 
Well, why would, it, why would it grieve the Holy Spirit that you're sinning if it was your nature to sin and sin had control of you? Would he grieve? No, he grieves over his children because we are using the freedom that God gave us in Christ, the grace he gave us, to choose sin. We're going back to the garden, folks. Listen, I told you week by week, the sin of mankind, our sin every day, is we suppress the truth and we replace it with a lie. And this is called idolatry. We put our trust in something or someone or ourselves when, when all the time the tree of life is there and we're to reach for that not suppress the truth and go for the fruit, the kiwi. I think it was a kiwi. Never mind. To live in sin probably means something like to swim in it, to breathe its air, to tolerate it, to make no progress. This is Tim Keller. Paul is not saying the Christian cannot commit individual sins, not even that they cannot struggle with habitual sin. He's not saying that. He is saying that you cannot go on abiding and remaining in the realm of sin deliberately without a distaste or diminishment. You know, I've told you all, some of, some of you know my story. Mati V and I got married. Uh, we were young, 20, I would think I was, what were we, 23 years old? And we were going to a, a very bad church. Very, I won't mention it, but it's right down the street here. And uh, we got filled with just uh, unbelievably bad doctrine and teaching and all this stuff. And we, and, but it failed. It didn't work as promised. It overpromised and underperformed. And it does that for everybody except the people at the top. They live in luxury. It's like a pyramid scheme. And this is going to be on YouTube. I'm going to get in a lot of trouble, man. <laughs> all right. You know. You go out there and try, you try to make faith a force and words the power of, of, of that force. Words are the, are the container, the, the medium, and you've got all this faith and you go out and I want this BMW and I want it now. It doesn't appear. And you get sick and it doesn't go away or your marriage falls apart and you can't fix it. Who do you blame? You blame yourself. Because you don't have... You, God's not at fault. He's up there and He's just waiting for you to have more faith. What a horrible religion that is. A false gospel. You can't have everything you want. You're gonna, uh, Christianity is suffering. Oftentimes suffering, suffering. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Half of you won't come back next week. We'll get a chocolate cake. Please come back. But I'll tell you what. If you know the gospel, you can suffer. And you can suffer and it's redemptive and it's life-giving and it's filled with God's glory and power and He will never leave you, never forsake you because your suffering is just a tiny mirror, a tiny reflection of what He suffered for you. He didn't suffer so we wouldn't have to. He suffered so we could. With Him. In this world. Dead to sin. And so Paul says this. Remember. Look at verse 3. Have you forgotten? 
Have you forget? This is a problem. We forget the gospel. Even moment by moment, we sometimes forget the gospel. He said, have you forgotten? Look, that we were joined, and the, the NLT says joined. It's actually the word baptized. Have you forgotten we were baptized with Jesus in baptism? We were joined or baptized with him in his death. We died, we were buried with him in baptism. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. This is what it means to be born again. That you are remembering. Being born again means you're a rememberer. And then when sin comes and crushes your life, you remember something. I died. That doesn't have any power over me. Not ultimately. It may kill me. But that only makes me better. I rise with Him. Suffering is completely different for Christians. It should be. And it's okay to suffer. I'm not saying go out and look for it. That would be presumption. But when it comes... And when you're, you're, you're wondering where God is, where are you? This is where you go. You remember. Why do we serve communion every week at Christ the King? We've got to remember this. This is a holy sacrament. It's not just remembering. We're actually remembering that it really is there. That His body and blood really were shed. And that when we eat that bread and that wine that somehow mysteriously the power of that comes into us. I don't know how. That's why we call it a sacrament, a mysterium, some mystery. But we remember him and then we take him in the way we do the things that nourish our life. No, you can't live without food and drink. So, have you forgotten? We died we were buried. Look at the contrast that he's making. This is why it's just impossible, well, for me with my small brain to try to figure out all this. Baptism. Whether you immerse, baptism can mean immerse or it can mean dip or it can mean pour. It can mean lots of water. It can mean little bit of water. It, it's just the act of baptism. Marks us, says you're mine. God is saying, you're mine. We're not saying anything to him in baptism. I've been baptized a number of times because I didn't understand what I was doing. And I've always got, you know, second when Monty V and I were baptized in a swimming pool. When, when we got baptized in a swimming pool, oh God, we're for you, we're for you. We came right out of the, the baptismal pool and within three days we were sending up a storm. If you're relying on yourself, that baptism means nothing. But if you look and see why were we baptized, why we were marked, why did He pour His Spirit into us and fill us, baptize us with the Holy Spirit? How, why? So we could live a different kind of life. He's calling us to do that. Look at verse 5. Since we were united with Him in His death we will also be raised. You see the, the contrast are going. We're united with him in his death. Now you have somehow, again it's mysterious, somehow you have the divine nature not 
you don't become divine, you don't become a God, you don't become... But somehow he clothes you with this nature. We call it the robes of righteousness. He puts them on us. We don't deserve them. In fact, underneath that sin, the presence of sin is still there, but its power has been broken. And he's telling us, now that you've been set free, look at verse 6. Our old sinful self was crucified with Christ. So sin lost its power. If you're a Christian, you do not, sin does not have power over you. If you say, well, I can't help it, don't say that anymore. If you sin, what are you supposed to do when you fall, when you mess up? Confess, repent, confess your sin. Believe the gospel, remember what he did for you, and then new obedience. You step right back into the fight, you put up your dukes, and off we go again. But you don't whine and say, oh, I can't help it, you know, my flesh and sin still has power over me. It's dead. The old nature's dead, but it's still there and it's still going to lie to you, it's going to tempt you, it's going to do all that. And so let me ask you a question. I used to ask my students this question. What is God more pleased with? Your repentance or your obedience? Scott, be quiet. You've heard me say this to me. What is he more pleased with? Your obedience or your repentance? Both. He loves it when we repent. He loves it when we take our mess that we willfully committed and shaking our fist at him saying, watch this. And he takes us back and loves us, embraces us, clothes us with his righteousness. It's already there, but he just reminds us it's there. And he does all his, his magic that Jesus does, assuring you that he loves you. And then he takes you and he says, get back in there and fight the good fight of faith. I'm with you. You're not on your own. It's not you. You're dead. You're in me now. We're united. Look at verse 7. We died with him. We're set free from the power of sin. Amazing. We died, verse 8, with Christ. We will also live with him now and in the future. Look at verse 9. We're sure that Christ was raised from the dead, never to die again, Death has no more power. Our guarantee is his resurrection. Now, to be a Christian, that's, that's like a, a basic. You believe Christ was raised from the dead. You believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection. Look at verse 10. He died once to break the power of sin. Now he lives for the glory of God. Every verse, he's going back and forth and he's just pounding away. Look how many times he said, sin has no power. You have power. You can live. You are alive. Look at 11. Consider, this is that word we talked about months ago, or weeks ago, logizomite, consider. In other words, think about it, reckon it to yourself, know that we're dead to the power of sin. When sin comes, let's say that sin pops up and you just do it and you don't think about it. And in a minute you go, oh my gosh, I should have never done that. Repent and believe the gospel. Think about it. Go back. Let's say that you think about the sin for about 30 or 40 minutes or 
like me, it only takes about three minutes to figure out whether I'm going to sin or not. And you plan it and you do it. He's still saying, you're dead to the power of sin and you're alive to God. How in the world, let me ask you a question, how in the world, after you sin, think of something awful that you did. You ate all the chocolate chip cookies. How are you going to get back? If it's not by His power, you can't get back. Yes? Say amen, because it's a yes. You're not going to get back by your power. You've got to get His power. He has broken the power of sin, and you've got to go back to Him in His power, in His strength. And He never holds His nose. I don't know how many times I've said this in church. He doesn't hold His nose at us. Look at verse 12. Don't let sin control you in the way you live. Don't give in to sinful desires. What you're supposed to do, folks, is recognize sin is present. He has left us in this world with sin around us and even sin still, the deadness of sin is still hanging on. The habituality of sin is still there. But, you know, some of us have uh, 70, 80, 90 years with sin. I'm not that. Some of us live long lives and we have to break those out. Some, we've got little kids and they're learning to worship over here and, and, and they're, hopefully, God help them that they'll never know a day in their life that Jesus is not their Lord and perhaps sin will be less in their lives. Either way, they're still going to have to fight the fight of faith. Steve Brown used to tell us that sin is, sin is like a demon. And you've got to look at that demon in your life. You've got to look at it, see its reality. I'm not talking about a literal demon. I'm just talking about the presence of sin. You've got to look that thing in the face in your life and say, this is not me anymore. You kiss it on the lips and you throw it out. You say no. You say no. And whatever happens after that, You run to Jesus. You run to Him. You get your eyes off yourself. See, when we sin, we want to find a remedy. Oh, I promise I won't do that. I'll make a vow. Uh, I'll go confess to Chuck. I'll tell him, please don't. I don't want to know. I'll promise I won't sin again. I'll get up early and pray. I'll do my devotions. I'll really bear down. If that comes into your mind, you're in trouble. You're in the morass. But if when you sin, you say, I remember, I'm dead to that. I've done it a hundred times, but I'm dead. That hundred and one time, I'm still dead. I'm going to run to Jesus, confess my sin, believe the gospel, trust Him, and go on to new obedience. What is repentance unto life? It's our shorter catechism, question 87. I could sing it for you, but then no one would ever come back to this church. That's how we learned the catechism. We had to sing it. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of the true sense of his sin and apprehension he takes hold of, the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose 
and endeavor after to new obedience. He's just wanting you to turn back and get back in the fight. Hate your sin. Grieve. Oh man, I messed up. This is horrible. And then run. Run, run, run. Don't, don't pass go. Don't do anything. Just dart to him. Fall at his feet. Do you know that everybody that fell at Jesus' feet, what did he do? He picked them up. He healed them. He did his thing over them. Whatever he did, never turned anybody away, never held his nose, not to them, not to you, and he never will. It's just remarkable. Sin no longer has mastery over you, 14. Then in 15, he closes it. Now, that's the beginning of another section, and we'll look at this next week. But he says, sin is no longer your master. Well then, since God's grace has set us free, does that mean we can go on sinning? Meganoito. May it never be. So he frames this whole section. May it never be. Should we continue to sin? No. Let's fight sin. Put up a fight. When he talks about the law, folks, let me just close with this. He doesn't mean we don't have to obey the law. But the curse that was attached to the law fell on Jesus. Yes? The curse attached to the law fell on this man on the cross. He bore that curse of disobedience when he was absolutely obedient. He took that. And he said, you're no longer under this. You're now under me. So should we obey the law? If we're under Jesus, yes. Every single part. In fact, I would say that until you're under Christ, you cannot love the law like, like David did and like other, other psalmists. They said, why well, love your law, O Lord? I look, I meditate in it day and night. It feeds, it nurtures my soul. How do you get there? How do you get to the point where I know this law is good and righteous and I'm going to do everything I can to obey not because I'm under it anymore, but because I'm under Jesus. And he did not do this so I wouldn't have to obey. He did his work so we could obey. So we can obey and do it with joy and gladness. And when we mess up with joy and gladness, we repent, believe the gospel, and go back to him. And when we obey him, here's what we say when we obey him. Father, I have only done what has been required of me. I come with nothing. This was nothing. This was just a requirement to obey. This is the least I can do for you. This is the least. And all the glory goes to you, none to me. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Foul. I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Will you trust Him? I, I hope you will. Father, uh, we thank You for this time together this morning and the time that we can remember what You've done for us. And even in our Christian life, even when we're bearing down with all our strength, sin comes, it's corruption, it's pollution, it lies, tempts us, 
And because we're still here in the body, we succumb. But you didn't. You beat the devil from your time in the wilderness till the last breath on the cross. He's defeated. And we can live under your grace. And I pray that each of us today will make that decision to trust you. Trust you once again for all our life. As we come to your table, we ask that you would feed us in our hearts by faith through Jesus. Amen.